So John chapter 9, and then we'll pick up the story later. It's, it's a really long story through the book, through the, the chapter, John chapter 9 here. Um, let me ask you this. Have you ever had a time in your life where what was happening was so painful, so hard, so really unprocessable, that every time kind of faced with that reality, you were like, this can't be happening. This can't be true. This must be a dream. Somebody wake me up. This, this is too, too much. I've been at times like that in my life where what was going on was so hard to digest that you, you wake up in the morning and you're kind of like, you know, for that five seconds, you're kind of like, you're, you're not there yet. You're not kind of aware of it yet. And then suddenly it hits you again. Oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah, that's what's going on. Oh, this is real. This did happen or this is happening. I can't believe it. I can't believe that's real. What am I going to do about this? And, and it comes back into you. There's, there's difficulty in that thing. There's something inside of us as human beings, a survival instinct or some grace from God. I don't know what it is exactly. That It fights against reality sometimes. It fights against the facts. These things are here. It's true. But I almost can't believe it. I live in some kind of a, a denial about it. There, you know, sometimes it can be really, really bad. Sometimes it can be really awful. Like, for example, if, if you got fired, let's say, Lord willing, this doesn't happen, but let's say, just pretend with me, that you got fired from your job last week. But you just said, you know what? I don't believe it. I'm not fired. I'm just going to keep going to work. That's not going to do you much good, right? I mean, if you just keep showing up to work after you've been fired, eventually you're going to... I don't know, you're going to have some interpersonal struggles, I would imagine, right? Um, you're, they're not going to pay you because you're fired, right? So you're wasting the time that you have maybe to find a different job and a different way of having insor- an income, a source of income. But at the same time, you're staying stuck in an old reality, one that has passed you by and you're not living in it, you know? Um, it, financially, if you fight against the facts financially, and a lot of people, it's kind of the American dream to pretend that I'm not in the financial circumstance I am, Right? Oh, I'll just get some credit. I'll just borrow. I'll just... And we live submerged under the realities financially. And it doesn't do us any good. We don't escape anything just because we pretend it's not true. Some of you today live that way in relationships. The facts are clear enough that this relationship is what it is. But you keep pretending that it isn't. And so you stay stuck. You stay stuck somewhere along the way where you need to be moving forward in a healthy direction. Maybe the relationship needs to end. Maybe the relationship needs to start. Maybe the relationship needs to change in some way. There needs to come some honesty to it. But until you're honest, until you're real in your own soul, until you're willing to embrace the facts instead of fighting the facts, you're stuck. And you can't get anywhere. And you can't do anything. For some of us, we fight against the the facts in our life because we argue and believe that what happens in my life is never my fault. All evidence to the contrary, all complaints to the contrary, we are sure that if we have properly assigned blame to everyone else and excused myself from all blame, that therefore I am not at fault. Right? And so we stay stuck. We get in this wrestling match. 
It's hard for us to see or hear from other people that we've been a contributor to the problem or even the cause of the problem. And so we live in this unreality. We live in the fairy tale. For other people, it's the reverse. It's that I think it's always my fault. All evidence to the contrary. You know, I can't seem to break free of this thing that everything that happens in my life is my fault. Well, everything that happens in your life is not your fault. Sometimes things happen that happen because other people are at fault. And so we're going to look at this dynamic today because the truth is in our world, it is normal for our world to fight against facts. Now, when I say that, I'm not talking about all facts. I'm talking about the facts that directly relate to Jesus being exactly who he says he is. They fight against it. They struggle against it. Uh, you know, you've seen documentaries. Uh, History Channel is going to tell, tell us who was the real Jesus, you know, because they're going to get in their time machine and go back and interview him or something, right? Like, they have no clue. And when you watch it, the, the investigation is so shallow. Will a typical Jewish person, blah, 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 that's like saying I can tell you what George Washington was like because I can study what generally people were like in, you know, 200, 300 years ago. Like, that's ridiculous. But that's the kind of investigation that goes on. Is the New Testament true? Why did some books get excluded from it? And why are others included? And the questions just swirl around, you know? Can we believe that Jesus is who the Bible claims him to be? And the questions just swirl and swirl. There's actually a fascinating book on that topic, and, and it illustrates some of what I'm talking about today. Uh, it's a book that I read last year called uh, Who Is This Man? by a guy named John Ortberg. And all he did, it wasn't really a Bible study, it was really a history study. And all he did is say, if you look at the impact of Jesus and the followers of Jesus over the last 2,000 years, the evidence for the fact that Jesus was not just an ordinary guy is astounding. Astounding. The, the impact on things, simple things like education, equality, health care, um, just, just simple stuff, charity, humility as a virtue, just things we take for granted, fabric of our life kind of stuff. It is absolutely abundant, the evidence, the facts that are undeniable, and yet we just dismiss them because they do not fit what we want to believe. Over and over again, we hear this whole thing, this whole Christianity is just based on a lie or it's based on some twisted truth. And it can grate at you, it can irritate you. We're going to look at maybe how to respond to that because we're going to look at some people today who wanted to reject who Jesus is, who Jesus claimed to be, and somebody who responded to that. At the same time, I would say it is very common for people who are followers of Jesus Christ to fight against the facts in our own life. Maybe you've accepted who Jesus is in the big picture. He's the Savior of the world. I've asked him to be my Savior. I've asked him to come in and rescue me, forgive my sin, and make me whole in Christ. Great, that's wonderful. But do you live like he's your Savior, not just for someday, but for today? Is he the Savior of the world, or is he the Savior of your life? What your day is, your living, your existence right now. Is he alive in you? We fight against facts when we live in realities like this. We live in worry. Do you know why it's so hard to live in worry? Partly, as a believer, it's because we fight against the fact that he is our shepherd, and so we shall not want. That he is the one who watches over us and takes care. No, i got to worry about it. We're fighting against facts. We fight against facts when we, when we live in greed. Well, maybe I won't have enough. Well, maybe I need some more. Maybe God isn't good enough for me. Maybe God isn't enough for me. We fight against the facts of what the Word of God tells us, Right? When we live in pride, well, look at me. If everybody thought I was something, then I would be something. Yeah, because what everybody thinks makes it true, right? 
We, li- we fight against facts um, when we live in judgmental churches, you know, that, that we act like God hasn't rescued us, like we're not all lost, hopeless, sinful people without Jesus Christ. We act like that, like I'm better than you, you know. Like, if you got Jesus, you'd be a little less than me because your life's a little messier than me. We act like it, right? We fight against the facts. Or like Jesus didn't call us to help those in need. Well, we live in insular churches that that are insulated from the the needs around us, and we don't do anything about it. We act like the facts of what the Word of God says aren't true. We, We fight against it. And we wonder why we're dysfunctional as people. And so as we look at this, I don't know if you're trying to have a discussion with someone who's wrestling against the facts or you're somebody wrestling against the facts. But either way, we're going to take a look at the story and see how the Pharisees keep fighting for their position in spite of very clear evidence that they were wrong. And we're going to see about how someone answered their objections to the truth. So start with me at verse 13. We're going to go down eventually to verse 25, but right now we're just going to go to verse 17. So verses 13 to 17. It says this, They brought to the Pharisees, the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. Finally, They turned to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. All right, so basically what happened here, we saw last week, this was a man who was born blind. And Jesus came along one day and spit on the ground and made some mud with his saliva and put it on the man's eyes and said, go wash. And when the man went and washed his eyes, he was healed. Lifelong problem taken care of in an instant by the healing touch of Jesus Christ. Pretty cool. Pretty amazing. Pretty awesome stuff. Now, you would think that that would be the big point that everybody would react to. That somebody you couldn't see all of a sudden could see. And somebody had healed him. You would think that would be the big point. But what happens is, and you can kind of see it here, they go on an investigation. The Pharisees decide, we've got to dig into this to find out what's going on. So instead of looking at the big point, they start to nitpick. They go after an investigation into the the trivialities, the details of this. So verse 13, they bring this this guy to the Pharisees. So the idea is that there's this this group of people that, that were around this man who, after he had walked away from Jesus to the pool to wash his eyes and found out that he could see, and he started telling everybody, I can see, there was a group of people that said, If this is true, our religious leaders have got to know about it. And we don't exactly know why they took this guy to to the Pharisees. We don't exactly know why. They knew that there was a rift. We'll see as we go that there was a rift between Jesus and the Pharisees. There was tension there. It becomes clear later in the story that many people knew that the Pharisees were threatening anyone who supported or believed Jesus. They were going to do something. So this was a very public tension out there. So bringing this man to the Pharisees suggests something. Maybe they wanted to see what the Pharisees would do with this man who now believed in Jesus. Will they put him out like they said they would do? Will they reject him from the temple? Maybe they wanted to tattle on Jesus. Look, he did it again, you know. And like, hey, we're telling, we're telling on him, so don't throw us out. Like, maybe they're trying to get on the Pharisees' good side. We, we don't really have what's underneath of this. 
Maybe they were confused. Wait a minute. You told us Jesus was not to be believed, but he just healed this guy and he just made him see. What's up? What do do we do with that? We don't know. But here's the point. The facts that were in evidence were so obvious that the Pharisees were wrong about Jesus that they took this man to Jesus and went, look at this. Which is God's call to the Pharisees and to the Jews to go, believe. Did you know that one of the prophecies in the Old Testament was very specific? That the Messiah would open the eyes of the blind? And what they say later on is, nobody's come around and done this before. Nobody's opened the eyes of the blind. Meaning, this must be Jesus. This must be the Christ. This must be the Savior. He must be the one. Right? So it wasn't for a lack of evidence. And clearly, here's a blind man standing in front of him. But what do they do? They decide instead of you know, believing, they're going to reject this undeniable reality because it disagrees with their position that Jesus is somebody to be rejected. And so they look past the miracle and they focus on technicalities. What technicality did they, did they focus on? Well, verse 14 tells us for the first time in this story that this all happened on a Sabbath day. Sabbath day in the Jewish culture was a God-ordained day of rest, a day of focus, a day to give yourself to God and to stop from all your work and to focus solely on Him. It was a Sabbath day. And so they didn't do work on that day. They didn't do a lot of things on that day because it was the Sabbath day, the day of rest. Now, we talked about this on Wednesday night a couple weeks ago. Do you know how many times Jesus specifically did stuff on the Sabbath day and did it in the face of the Pharisees? It's like a dozen times in the four Gospels. It mentions it, which doesn't mean that's all he did, but like out of four books, there's like a dozen times where like on the Sabbath day, Jesus did this. And there's always an argument about it. Well, what about the Sabbath? Aren't you supposed to rest on the Sabbath? And it's this big proof that Jesus must be, uh, you know, not from God because he's working on the Sabbath. He's not keeping the Sabbath. And it's almost like Jesus does it specifically so he can challenge them on what they think they know because they're totally lost. Sometimes God comes after you, after the things that you believe God has established in your life. He comes after you on those things because you have put your hope in the boundary you've established or your understanding and not on Him. And so He breaks it apart. He he just shatters it. You thought you knew what to do about parenting. You thought you knew what to do about finances. You thought you knew what to do about your job. You thought you knew what to do about marriage. And God just kind of rips it open. Because all of us as humans tend to hold on to what we can control, what we can understand, what we can do ourselves. And God says, no, just because I'm gracious and give you some, some like, you know, footholds here, they're not your hope, I am. And so he comes to these Pharisees who got lost in the God-given law about the Sabbath, which they added about 490 laws to, but they, they got lost in it. And so Jesus, in an act of grace and mercy, comes and challenges them on it in their face. and says, wait a minute, you think the Sabbath is what saves you? No, it is I who save you. You need to, to, to let go of your idea of the Sabbath. Now, how was this a violation of Sabbath rules? Seems like a small thing. He spit on the ground, put mud on the guy's eyes and healed him, you know, Hard to believe that came under like the Old Testament law about not working on the Sabbath. Well, here's how it came under the law. They say, you notice what verse 14 says. The day on which Jesus had made the mud. He made mud. He did work. You can't make mud. 
you see, on the Sabbath day, right? And he had opened the man's eyes. You can't administer medicine. You can't do healing stuff on the Sabbath day. And verse 15 says, Therefore, because he had made mud and opened the man's eyes, therefore the Pharisees asked him, How had he received his sight? Is it true that he did work? Is it true that he made mud? Is it true that he healed you on the Sabbath day? Like they're investigating the details, the technicalities of it. And so they're going to dig into this because, you know, making mud, you can't do that. And so they're skipping over the main point to try to find some proof that Jesus isn't legitimate. The site has been returned, but let's make sure we understand that it was done in the wrong way, right? Fighting against facts in your life often shows up like that. You nitpick. You get wrapped up in discussions about word meanings and technicalities and details and that's not exactly what I said and things like that because you're not interested in the bigger picture. You're wrestling over a much smaller point. What you'll find is that fighting against the facts always keeps you stuck. You feel like the harder you push, the less motion there is. You just stay right there. If anything, you move in the wrong direction. If anything, you go the wrong way. So if it's a relationship, and this relationship is actually bad, this person is poisonous in your life, but you just don't want to believe it yet because you don't want to deal with that, right? So you stay stuck in your mind because you argue over, well, technically, whatever, whatever your technical argument, a Christian's supposed to forgive. So I'm just going to keep letting them walk all over me, and I'm going to keep letting this be a poisonous relationship because a Christian's supposed to forgive. So you have your point. And you're holding on to it, but it's bringing you death. It's time to let go, right? That's kind of the idea here, is here right in front of them is plain truth. But we're going to look at, you know, did he make, how much mud did he make? Was it enough to qualify as work for the day? Give you examples. How many of you know, as a believer, you are supposed to share your faith? Does everybody know that? You can like nod your head. You can scratch your chin and think thoughtfully. You can, a couple different things. But yeah, you understand that, right? Everybody's called to share your faith. That God says, you're my ambassador. And wherever I send you this week, the rest of this day, wherever you go, you are to share what I've given you with people who need it out there. There are close relationships in your life that God has put there specifically so you can share the good news of Jesus Christ with people who need it, right? But, We can paralyze our witness by staying stuck in the smaller details. Well, I don't know if it's the right time. Well, I don't know if I know the right thing to say. I don't know if I feel prepared. I don't know how they'll react. We worry about all the details instead of embracing the big picture. So what winds up happening is we fall into the plans in the hands of the enemy who wants to keep us stuck, who wants to keep us neutralized because we understand the big picture. We haven't rejected the big picture. We just have lived like it's not true because we have all these technicalities. So the Pharisees say, he put, you know, how did you receive your sight? He put mud on my eyes, now I see. What I want you to see is this. The, the, the Sabbath was not meant to be a burden. The Sabbath was meant to be a blessing. God didn't say, stop working on the seventh day because I really want your life to be hard. I really want your life to stink. So therefore, you have to stop working on the seventh day. It was supposed to be, you know, We, left to our own devices, are always brutal on our own soul. We just are. So you have to recognize that once a week, you've got to stop from all that stuff and you've got to sit down and you've got to rest and you've got to look up around you at the things that matter and look up and spend some time worshiping the Lord. And you've got to have this day 
blessing, a gift of grace. And yet, the struggle that the Pharisees have with this blessing is that they have, of their own making, turned it into a burden, turned it into bondage. They've looked at all these rules upon rules about what you can't do on the Sabbath day. Well, you can't this, and you can't that, and you can't this other thing. Many of the burdens in our life are from the same thing. We take the good things that God has given, the gifts that God has given, but we turn them into some kind of bondage, some kind of burden. We try to make more out of them than God intended, or we try to get more out of them than God intended. And in doing so, we turn ourselves into the slaves of these gifts. God is the giver of every good gift. Did you know that? James 1 tells us every good gift comes down from the Father above. So every good thing in your life, genuinely, truly, eternally good thing in your life is from God. Everything. But every good thing is also offered a counterfeit, twisted, just like this Sabbath thing. You know, God gives this good gift and we take it and try to twist it. Our flesh tries to twist it or pervert it. So there's still this idea that, I don't know if you found this to be true in your life or not, but if left to your own devices, you will be too busy, too overwhelmed, have too much to do, have too much on your calendar. Does this resonate with anybody? So we're, but we act like, you know, that whole Old Testament Sabbath thing, that's just the Old Testament. We're smarter than that now, see? We, we know how to manage our lives, so we have, we have enough rest. We have enough time for worship in our lives. We don't need to, like, carve out a day just to make sure that we come together as the, you know, the family of God, the children of God, and worship Him. We got other stuff to do in our lives because we're busy, Right? See, there's this fighting against the facts. The reality is, if I say to you on a Sunday morning, how are you doing? And you say to me, I'm just busy. I don't go, what's wrong with you? We, that's a normal response, right? Like, yeah, I get it. Man, I'm busy too. Absolutely, we're busy. So we know the reality. The facts are right in front of us. But what do we do? We fight against it. We act like, no, no, we're fine. This is a sustainable pace for my life. I can live at peace and at rest in my soul, even though I'm living like I'm about to lose my brain right? We fight against the facts inside of us. And so everything that God gives us, every gift that God gives us wants to get perverted by our flesh or by our enemy. And so the Pharisees are here. There's this fact in front of them. They can't deny it. They're fighting against each other. Well, this man can't be from God. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. But the other people say, but he's healed this guy. He can't be a sinner. And so they're arguing back and forth. What I will tell you is this. When you want to fight against facts, you love questions. Because you use a question, an unanswered question, as an excuse to refuse to believe. You, ref- you use it as an excuse to stay stuck. There's some clear thing that God is doing in front of you, but you can't resolve all your questions. Pharisees said, well, we can't answer why this man was healed, but we can raise enough questions to stop from accepting that he is who he says he is. It is a normal tactic when we are fighting against the facts that we like to muddy the waters. Well, it's all confusing. Well, God is not the author of confusion. Did you know that? If your life is just a muddy water mess, it's not because God came in and said, I don't want you to know anything. It's because we muddied the waters so we could stay where we wanted to be. So we had an excuse not to act. How many of you know you should read your Bible? How many of us have let muddy waters? Well, I don't know when to do it. I don't know where to read. I don't know how to. 
I can never understand it. Well, does that diminish the fact that you should read your Bible? No, but we love to live in the muddy waters because what it says is this, it kind of does this emotional thing in us. Well, I haven't actually rejected it. I just don't know how to do it. Well, let me just say this. The best way to read your Bible is to read your Bible. The best way to pray is to pray. The best way to make sure that you are at church on a regular basis getting what you need is to show up for church. I mean, really, it's not as complicated as we make it in life. We get, I don't know about this and I don't know about that. You know what that is? That is the enemy's work and our flesh's work to leave us enough excuse so we don't have to feel bad about ourselves for not doing what we're supposed to do. And when we could go, I don't know what to do about it. Yes, you do. Knock it off, right? There's enough clarity from the Spirit of God for us to get going in our life. Will we? The question is, will we? The question is not, well, how will it all work out? And what will happen when I do? The question is, do I know what I'm supposed to do? Then do it. Then do it. Stop fighting against facts. Stop stirring up and muddying the waters. We aren't called to find some middle ground and just hang out there. We are called to believe. We are called to move forward by faith. When I'm not believing yet, even though I kind of believe, but I'm not acting on it, James tells us faith without works is dead, right? And so if I believe, but I don't do anything about it, it's the same as refusing to believe because I haven't believed yet. So we chase questions, we chase technicalities. In the face of the realities we have, we focus on the things we don't know instead of the things that we do. As an engineer, my training was this. Um, First thing you do when you come to a problem is you say, what are my knowns? What are the things that I know? That's the first thing you do. Almost always when you pick out all the things you know, then it leads you right to the formula that you're supposed to use to solve the problem almost every single time. As a pastor, I've applied that engineering training very similarly to the things that I do. Well, what do we know? Well, I don't know what we should do here. I don't know what we should do there. Okay, great. So what do we know? And oftentimes the big decisions are led by the little things that I know because God's provision is what, in what he's already told me. If I have faith that God wants to lead me, then I have faith that what God has already told me, what I'm already sure of, is enough to lead the direction of my life. And I can go forward. And that's how, that's exactly the opposite of what these guys are doing. They have enough evidence, but they turn away from it. And so they come finally, verse 17, to the blind man. What do you have to say about it? How how did he open your eyes? And the man says, he is a prophet. They want the waters muddy. This man had let the water get clear. Jesus' healing touch, Jesus' work in his life was enough. He didn't need to figure all the rest of it out. He didn't need to argue every legal point. He just knew Jesus was a man from God. When he says he's a prophet, he's saying he represents God. He's doing God's work here. Maybe the reason we struggle to share our faith, maybe the reason we struggle to live in the reality of who Jesus is, is because we forget the healing that came from Jesus' work in our life. We don't live in that simple reality. If you're a child of God today, did God forgive your sin? Did he conquer sin and death for you? Did he die on the cross for you? We forget it. That's why we come together in communion to remember his work. Maybe it's not that we've forgotten it. Maybe it's that we've never experienced it. Maybe you're here today and you've never accepted Christ's work in your life. And so that's why you fight against facts because you don't know what it's like. The invitation is to experience it today. But even bigger than that, When was the last time that you could say, you know for sure God reached into your life 
and touched you and did a work in you. And it was undeniably God. He healed you or he directed you or he answered something or he worked in your life. And it was something that you could just simplify down to. I don't know how he did it. I just know he did it. I know nothing else would have done it, but he did it in my life. If that hasn't happened recently, it's because you're living too small. You're living like God's power is not available for you. Well, I only take steps that I can manage. You're living too small. God didn't call you to take steps you could manage. We just had a family up here that's got kids. Do you think that that might be a big, big enough test that's a little bigger than parents can handle? God doesn't call us to tasks that are manageable. He calls us to more than we can do so that the power of God has to be alive in me. So you might be living too small or you might be fighting against facts, which is God wants to do a work and you won't let him. You're preoccupied with other stuff. All right, so how do they react to this? Where do they go? Uh, verse 18 down to verse 23. Just a couple thoughts here. It says this, the Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? We know he's our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. And that was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. All right, so they don't get anywhere with the, with the man because the fact, the stubborn fact that he can see just won't go away. They can't seem to get around it. So they've proven that Jesus broke the Sabbath, but it doesn't get them anywhere, so they try again. Well, maybe he wasn't the guy who was born blind. Maybe we're just mistaken identity. Let's get his parents. Now, that sounds like a good thing. Let's establish that this is the right guy because we're actually digging into the facts here. But what you find is that they're really digging in to hope that maybe the story changes somehow. Maybe they can get the parents on their side and they can dismiss what Jesus did in his life. Because Jesus taking the mud and putting it on his eyes was an undeniable reality that Jesus was involved in this man's healing. There were times in Jesus' ministry where he just healed somebody. You're healed. This was not. Jesus touched him. Jesus made the mud and put it on his and told him what to do. It was undeniable that Jesus was the man giving the healing. So they call his parents and they say, hey, is this your son that you say was born blind? Are you saying he was born blind? Are you giving testimony? You see how they're kind of inquisitioning here? And if that's the case, how did he start seeing? If he was blind, how did he see? And we see underneath of it, underneath of this question is that there's this predetermined idea. If anyone says that Jesus is the Christ, we're going to do all we can to force them. Anyone who accepts Jesus' word will pay. They will be shunned. They will be pushed aside. They will be rejected. They will be isolated. What a powerful force. Go back in junior high, you know, one of the most powerful forces you had was to be rejected from the social group, right? Uh, there's one of the most powerful like wounds in our souls when someone that was supposed to accept us, we were supposed to belong to, rejects us, a spouse, a parent, somebody like that, and they reject us. It lives inside us. It's just a big, there's a huge powerful force in this rejection stuff. And so the Jews decide, well, what we can do is we can force people to agree with us so that they won't push against us by forcing them out of the synagogue. When we're fighting against the realities of faith, we try to shut down the discussion. We try to shut down the truth finding. 
I'm not saying there aren't questions out there about science and history, but if you're just living in the questions, then you're not really living. You're living stuck. We can all explore all those questions, but they won't bring clarity to spiritual matters. You know why? Because spiritual matters are not a matter of science. And if you reduce them to that, I had a conversation with somebody who said, I want to reduce everything just down to like the physical realities, chemical interactions and all that stuff. And I said, how empty of an existence that you have settled for because you want to reject spiritual realities. You're demanding that, you, that spiritual realities be proven and because you've already decided that, everything that's said to you is just filtered through that. You're fighting against the facts because the facts is there's more to this life than just the physical realities that we have. So when someone limits their scope to just scientifically proven facts, you're eliminating stuff that can't be seen under a microscope or proven by some mathematical formulas. But we do the same thing. We don't want to hear anything that doesn't fit with my view. And if you're not for me, then you're against me. If you don't agree with me, then you're my enemy and I will fight against you. We, we do that, right? And so fighting against the facts. And so his parents say, listen, we don't want anything to do with this. Ask him. So let's, let's finish this out. Verse 24 and 25. So they come back to the man a second time. They summon the man who had been blind and they say, give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. Verse 25, he replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Now here's an answer. Here's an answer for our world that's stuck in swirling questions and doubts. One thing I know. What one thing do you know about Jesus? Anything? Can you bring it down to that clarity of one thing I know? This guy goes, one thing I know. I woke up this morning, I couldn't see. Now I can see. I was blind, but now I see. They come to him and they say, listen, you got to pick a side. Accept that you know, God Almighty himself has healed you and that, that he's the reason that you're healed and that this man is a sinner, that Jesus is not from God. Accept that or rebel against the God of the universe. That's the choice they give him. Give glory to God. We know this man's a sinner. Tell us that God healed you and he had nothing to do with it. That's what they're saying. And he says, listen, I'm not going to get into all the theological arguments. I don't really care. Here's what I know. I'm not going to try to sort through all the theology, all the technicalities, all of the the minutiae. I'm going to cut to the facts. And here's the undeniable fact. I was blind. Now I see. Were you blind? Were you lost? And now you're found? Were you dead? And now you're alive? Do you know it? Has Jesus done a work in your life? What if the people of God were people who said, listen, I know this. I know this. I don't know about all that stuff, but I know this. He's done something in my life, let me tell you. He's done something for me. This one thing I know. This one thing I know. 